Well, good morning once again. Um, I want to just, yeah, introduce you this morning to our series. Those of you who are maybe with us for the first time or visiting, this is now the 11th uh, message uh, uh, in this series, which we are calling Locally Grown, the Fruit of the Spirit, something the Lord put on, the Holy Spirit put on my heart and, and the elders uh, many months ago was the, you know, we fly by these two verses in Galatians 5 that we're going to read again this morning, and it's the fruit of the Spirit, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, and we and one message on it, and then it, it just dawned on us, you know, what does it really mean? And uh, I don't know, I've heard from some of you, uh, many of you actually, that uh, as we've been going deeply into agape love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, faithfulness, all these things, it's been very helpful to us. So we're going to dive into the last facet today, <laughs> the last virtue. You're all really excited about this one, right? Self-control. I should probably pray now, but I'm going to pray after I read the scripture. Uh, this should be very, very interesting. We've been looking at it from the perspective of this is, this is one fruit. It's not plural. It has many facets or virtues or character traits, and these are all of God. They are all of God. They are him. God is love. We know that. But he's also love, joy, peace, patience, all these things. So I'm going to read our text in context today. We'll get to the two primary verses but I want to read it in the context today because the context is important to this last message. Uh, On the facets, we will wind up next week with a wind-up, which I hope will really encourage you. Put it all together next week. How how in the world is the fruit producer, the Holy Spirit? uh, What's the relationship there with the branches, which is us and the vine? And is there anything else missing in that picture? Yeah, there actually is, and we're going to see that next week. Read with me in Galatians chapter 5. Verses 16 to 26, and then I'm going to pray one more time before we dive in. Paul writing to the church in Galatia, but I say, this is a conclusionary point, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And our two primary verses, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, oh yes, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have, past tense, crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, um, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, uh, I'm so grateful, Father, that um, we have these words. We have this book. We have all of the books. 
I'm so grateful. We're so grateful, Holy Spirit, that you've, you've inspired the authors of these books to record your words, to record truth for us. Without these texts, without these words, we would not know who you are. Certainly not in the way that we do, and we can see you here. So, Lord, I, I, I deeply and honestly pray today that you would help me communicate the words that you've given to me about this facet of the fruit called self-control, because I desperately need it. I, and I know that my brothers and sisters and my friends here today will admit that they desperately need it as well. So we pray for your help and your blessings today in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. So again, for those of you who are regular attenders, you'll know I like to ask questions. <laughs> and I always ask questions of the text so that I, I guess I've got to figure it out. I have to figure it out before, I, or at least what I can figure out to bring to you on a Sunday morning. So my question for you this morning, basic question is, how are you doing? Honestly. Self-control, something that you've pretty much got, got, a, got a control of. You can tick that box. Nobody's raising their hands. Good. It's like I said, honestly, right? Honestly. The truth is, I think if we're all honest, and I, I've been going over and over and over this in my mind for the last couple of weeks, preparing for this message, really, we have to all admit we have terrible problems with self-control. We do. There's a device you carry around in your hand and in your pocket these days. Self-control? I read yesterday, not in preparation for this, but the average, the average North American looks at their phone, grabs it 150 times a day. I'm counting. It tells you now. Like if your screen lights up, it'll tell me at the end of the day. I'll let you know next week how I'm doing. So I want you to think about it for yourself this morning. I really want us to dive deeply into this. Maybe, how about your emotions and your thoughts? Are they out of control? Are they under control? Uh, are you having trouble with that? How about your, hmm, this little thing here? How about the tongue? Or, or a, a less than healthy habit? There's lots of them, right? We read some of them today. We're going to go back over that painful list that Paul gave to us a little bit today. We just have to. How, how, about, how about a relationship and, and your part in it? Is it under control or is it out of control? And, and how much of that is because of your lack of self-control or my lack of self-control? I think there's one area, which is this is going to hurt, but it's just the truth, <laughs> that we all struggle with self-control. We all do. Far more than maybe we understand. It's called pride. Is, is pride under control in your life? I don't know. I, I still catch myself walking by the, the, the win windows outside of Canada Post going, is the hair okay? So listen, 
we need to dive deep into this today. So taking the two words separately, let's begin with self. Experts, whether scientists or psychologists or academics, people who actually study this subject and look into the self, right? They're going to tell you a very interesting thing from studies. They're going to tell you that the average person, the average human being, North American mostly, but mostly Western societies, thinks of themselves and their self-story, what do you think, 30% of the time? How about 50%? 95% of the time. I know. Beat yourself up a little bit, but don't, because it, it, it's part of this world, this soup that we're living in, this culture that we're living in, isn't it? The prefix alone, self, I mean, it's self-control. That's a prefix, right? It is, it's unbelievable. Like, I've only got a few that I'm going to mention to you this morning, but the list, you could keep going on and on and on. So you're conditioned with this. I'm conditioned with this. From the day we're born, we have something called being self-aware. How about self-care? How about self-confident? Yeah, I like that one. Self-esteem, because most of us are really not that prideful. We need more self-esteem. Hold on, right? Here's one. Every bookstore has the largest department or area would be called what? Self-help. Yes, exactly. You guys have been to school. Self-respect, self-starter, self-centered, self-conscious, self-defense, self-employed, and my favorite of all time, the self-made man or woman. Okay, yes, I understand, right? Hey, at the end of the day, as I look at these things, I'm just going to speak about myself, so don't take this personal. I think we're a bit self-obsessed. We're, we're a bit self-obsessed, to say the least. So now listen, not all of the things that I just listed for you are in and of themselves problematic. I mean, self-care, self-esteem, you know, self-confidence. I mean, in and of themselves, they're not necessarily all that problematic, although they have the potential for us to become too self-focused, constantly self-focused, and that can lead to a character trait that, again, psychologists will tell you today is growing and growing and growing in popularity. Well, not really. It's called narcissism. People who are so self-obsessed, they cannot literally stop and care for another person who is hurting right in front of them because at that moment they're just thinking about themselves. So on the negative side... These can lead us to becoming selfish, self-serving, self-pitying even, and the list goes on. Self. It's so predominant. Control also has, obviously, downsides. How many of you in this room really like a controlling person? (laughs) Nobody? Okay. Um, Yeah, not much, right? The control freak. You know, whether it's a spouse, whether it's a parent, right? Whether it's a friend. What about an employer? People who are controlling, are that's not a good trait. It's, 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 it's problematic. We don't like it. And so self-control itself, by the way, also has a very interesting history, which I'd like to consider, and for this reason. So as part of this series, we, we, we've been looking, looking at all of the virtues we've seen so far, whether they're love, joy, peace, etc., which are fruit of the Spirit and are therefore, as we've discovered, they're not natural. We, we look at the list and we say to ourselves, well, every, every human being wants to be loving, wants to be joyful, wants to be... And, and, and we've seen in that, actually, in the study, they're not natural. These ones that are being described in Galatians 5 are not natural. They're supernatural. 
they're from the Holy Spirit of God. They're very different. So we've also seen that there are some opposites. There are some mere facsimiles, and that favorite word that you all like me using, which I got from Tim Keller, by the way, counterfeits. They're counterfeit versions. Self-control is a very interesting one that we need to see a couple things about. In our study, we've been able to see almost in every, well, not almost, in every single one of them in our study, we've been able to see from Scripture very clearly how these virtues are who God is. You all know, First John, God is love. We all know that, but God is joy. God is peace. God is patience. God is all these things. We've been able to go through Scripture verse by verse in the Old Testament, of course, looking at Jesus, looking at the teachings of the apostles in the New Testament, and we've been able to see clearly how these are attributes of God himself, of his character, of his being. And so they're supernatural. We've also learned that the fruit producer is who he is, but I mean, that fruit producer is. And this is very important. I want to emphasize this this morning. We, it, but the fruit of the Spirit is, right? We've been flying by that many, many times now. And maybe we forget this. His actual full name is the Holy Spirit. So these virtues, these facets, these character traits are not only supernatural, they're not only his, they are holiness and righteousness that come from him and he wants to give to us, he wants to ripen in us. For what purpose? So that we would be holy and righteous in this life today. And obviously to accomplish that, we're going to need the power of the Holy Spirit and we're going to need him to help us with... Self-control. So most theologians and commentators, they, the commentators, they take a different tact with self-control when it comes to the other facets of the truth. They would say, and I would agree, that the rather ugly lists of sins of the flesh that Paul, we just read, and we're going we're gonna to have to go back and look at some of them uh, in detail, um, that these are uh, not things that God needs self-control over. Why? Because there's no sin in him. <laughs> These are not relatable to God whatsoever. That kind of uncontrolled uh, life causes people to give in to self-indulgence, self-gratification, pride and gluttony and so on. Self-control is the opposite of those kinds of sinful behaviors. That fact is probably the reason why self-control is the only, only fruit of the Spirit which we don't have a matching quality for God because God doesn't need to exercise control of himself over the things that we do. Amen? So it's different, but it's still a fruit of the Spirit. It's important. So sin, of course, there's your favorite three-letter word, right? Uh, it, that, that is a word that is often terribly misunderstood outside and inside the church sometimes. So we've kind of gone over that a little bit to give us a clear picture of it. But a common way, as most of you know, uh, of people thinking about sin is that it's, it's something that we do that's bad, and because it's bad and we do it, well, you know, God is just looking for an opportunity to go, good, I get to punish Glenn again. Some people think that that's what God is like. Or, or some people also will, will think that it's, he, he's kind of like a party. No, I can't say that word from the pulpit. It's not the life of the party, right? Like he just wants to take all the fun out of life, right? Because he wants to punish. Well, no. But people have these views of what he's like. We also have... I, I, these cute little ways of trying to domesticate sin, right? 
Yeah, very cute little ways. You know, guilty or sinful pleasures, right? Some people will call them, right? And there's also this thing called decadent double chocolate cake. It's decadent. What's that mean? Sinful. So people, I mean, he's trying to domesticate it, trying, trying to lower it. But of course, you know, we know that's not how God views sin. That's not how he views sin at all. God views it this way. He sees it as rebellion against his rule and reign in our lives. He sees it as rebellion. These are also behaviors and actions that he sees that, from his perspective, are literally killing us. They're killing us, which is why Romans 3.28 says, for the wages of sin is death. The payment that you and I are due for our sinful behavior is death. And, and of course, that's the ultimate punishment, right? The judgment punishment. But what we like to point out here at the Rock Church is every sin of the flesh, every sin that we commit every day is like a continual paper cut. <laughs> one after the other, one after the You might look really healthy right now. On the surface, you look really, really healthy. You could have a terminal disease and it's not really showing. Sin is like that. Right? People can walk around with you know, really looking, good-looking hair, like, like look perfect on the outside, but inside, it's killing you. It's killing us. It's killing me. And that's how God looks at it. So let's take a brief look at this list that Paul cites. This should be fun. Before we move on to defining biblical Holy Spirit-empowered self-control, okay? The first verse, in verse 19, Paul says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality... We'll have that on screen, Alec. Verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality. Nope, the one before that. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Impurity and sensuality. I want to stop there because Paul, you're going to see in a few minutes, bookends these opening three with the word orgies. Wow, that's in the Bible. Um, So clearly, uh, in Paul's mind and God's mind, sexual sin is a big part of our battle with the passions of the flesh. It is. And in many ways, it is out of control. So for our purposes here this morning, I want to delve into this very briefly and simply say this and state it clearly. In God's mind and in his plan for us, which is clearly laid out, from cover to cover in the Bible, in his word, how we were created and designed to live our lives is that all sexual intimacy is to be in a covenant marriage relationship between one man and one woman, period. Everything else, every other sexual encounter is sin. In God's eyes and in his Economy, self-control. Look, I got the T-shirt, kids. When I look back at my youth before meeting Janice, wow. So there's grace for that, right? Here's the thing. The really good news is this. God wants us to have life and life to the fullest. He doesn't want us to die in this life too. He wants us to live for him. So the problem, bottom line is, is that when we read things like this and we hear this kind of thing, it sounds rather controlling, right? Marriage? Only in marriage? That's kind of limiting. That's kind of controlling. And we don't like that. Do people in the world like that? 
Obviously, we don't because we rebel against it all the time. So we don't like it. So we don't have time this morning, but if, if you were to do, listen, do a deep study on, on this, listen, on how A, how A, out of control our world and culture is sexually. Do you have to think about that much? You know, just one word, Hollywood, right? Second word, your phone. It's out of control. Our whole world is focused on it completely focused on it. You all know my background before becoming a pastor preacher was in the field of marketing. And, you know, what is constantly being done to us in the field of marketing, especially to men? Pretty girls draped over a car. Can you move so I can see the car, please? No. It's, it's in our face all the time. Secondly, the harmful effects. If you were to do a deep study on the harmful effects and the brokenness that results from our over-sexualized culture and world and sin, I think what we'd end up seeing is this. We'd end up realizing that God's ways are actually really good, and what he has for us is based on the fact that he really does love us. He wants us to be healthy. He wants what's truly best for us. So let's not fixate on those sins, right? Because some people like in the church to fixate on those, right? No, Paul doesn't. He goes on, he says, and listen, all of the things that we're going to read next, they have the same consequence as all of the sexual sins. So if that's not you, you might find yourself in the next group. Idolatry. What is idolatry? Idolatry is making anything in this world or life more important than God himself. Again, my favorite pastor who's going on to be with the Lord put it this way. If there's anything in your life today that if you didn't have any more or couldn't have any more, your life would feel like it's not worth living, that is an idol. That is your idol. Sorcery. Well, that's witchcraft. That's actually demonic worship. Enmity. This is a great word. Enmity. I don't know if too many of you actually know even the Webster's definition, but biblically speaking, it's this. Enmity is having a, a view, an attitude towards other people where you see them as your enemy. And you know what? You, you actually also hate them because they're your enemy. Hello, social media. Enmity. It's a sin, and it's killing us. Strife, jealousy, fits of anger. This is a good one. Fits of anger is, is what? It's losing your temper. Right? It's, it's okay to be angry, but fits of angry here means losing your temper, and that's interesting because the King James Version of the Bible, which is great, it, um, it translates self-confidence. Do you know how it, uh, self, pardon me, control? Do you know how it translates that word? It's a beautiful word. We don't use it too much anymore in North America. It's the word temperance, which is the opposite of losing your temper. It's beautiful, beautiful way of seeing these things. And then there are rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. And then I love the way Paul says this. And things like these, it's like <laughs> there's more to the list, right? Oh, it's, I know. It's this. Gluttony, he mentions in another passage. Things like these, which are... Sins of the flesh. 
So besides all the focus on self that we've seen so far, the idea of self-control itself has a very long and interesting history. Seems like, seems like honestly, if you do, a, a, again, a study on this, go back millennia, it seems like men and women have held various views and perspectives on the subject and also that self-control has always been viewed in a couple of different and distinct ways that may, and the reason why I want to highlight them for you this more, might impact the way you understand biblical self-control, Right? If you remember the series, we had a series uh, last year. It was called The Good Life. Remember that one? We all want to live the good life, right? It was based on uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' famous sermon. He gets up in front of uh, his disciples at his feet, and there's a whole huge, huge, I'll say it, huge crowd there, right? And he knows, Jesus knows when he gets up, that there are basically two worldviews looking him in the eye. One of them, of course, is the Jewish faithful, some faithful and some very religious types, but there were also Greco-Romans there. And there's two very distinct worldviews looking at him and listening to him. When he says the Greek word makarios, which we translate as blessed in our Bibles, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, all the Greco-Romans were like, amen, this is awesome. Because <laughs> it, it means the good life. I mean, that, this is going to be a self-help sermon. And they've heard that this guy is a wise teacher, so they're, they're all over it. This is awesome, right? Same with the Jewish uh, listeners, though. They're like, Makarios, good life. Well, yes, we want God to bless us. We want God to bestow you know, children upon us and lots of goods and cattle. And so, yeah, Makarios, they understood it, but from different perspectives, right? In different ways, they both held self-control as the key to virtue, what would lead them to the good life. The Greco-Romans via the mindset of ethics, they, they basically believe, look, if I'm a good ethical person, if that's on display in culture and in the world, and I, you know, I got all my ducks in a row, and I pay my taxes, and you know, I check all the boxes, and I'm, you know what, it's, it's like karma, it's like you know, the, the world will bless me, and I will therefore live the good life. That's why they thought this was awesome, what he was going to be teaching. Poor in spirit, <laughs> that threw them for a loop. Now, of course, the Jewish religious leaders and listeners, of course, they're listening to that, and they're going, well, yeah, that's how it works with God. You know, if we faithfully follow the law, if we faithfully go to synagogue, if we faithfully tithe, tithe every little thing, and, you know, and then we'd be, be seen to be doing it, then, you know, like it, God's on the hook. God's on the hook. He has to bless us. So these worldviews were, were really, really prevalent back in the day of Christ. They were prevalent way before that, as we're going to see, but in the days of Christ. And so I don't know about you, but, but I don't know if, are you seeing what's going on here? Because as I'm looking at that for the first time when I was looking at it this week, it became really clear to me. It's, it's like this self-control that they have in mind is, is really what it gets them, right? It's really selfishly motivated, isn't it? I, I want to be... <laughs> Virtuous, I want to have self-control uh, because what? So I will receive the good life. I will receive something better. The Apostle Paul, the proud Jewish zealot that we all know about, who wrote Galatians before meeting Jesus, becomes the apostle to the Gentiles, we're told. And he was. The Greco-Roman world, which we've already looked at, also had two different groups. And this is fun. They had two different worldviews within their own worldview, which was interesting. Um, and it was slightly different views of self-control. The first group were people called, and you've all heard of them in history, called the Stoics. Anybody know a Stoic? Well, trust me, some of you are Stoics, right? Some of us have been Stoics, and we will be again, right? 
Stoics essentially were supportive of, of, of government. They, they were from a generation that took family and civic life very seriously. And, you know, like they were people who had, you know, basically the drawers in their dressers were like they had a sock and an underwear drawer, which I don't have. They had pajama drawer. You know, like the, everything was, you know, what was her name? Maria Kondo, whatever was, I don't know. Everything was in order. And it was, it was a key ethics and self-control were key virtues for these guys. It was incredible. And of course, they, they were about keeping the rules, living a very ordered and clean life, and they highly valued these things called ethics and self-control as potentially the highest virtues that anyone could adhere to, and these would, of course, lead to the good life. Here's the problem. Stoics have kids. <laughs> yeah. And you know what they become? Epicureans. It's true. Paul knew when he was preaching at Mars Hill. He knew when he was preaching in Gentile, Greco-Roman cultures that the two were present. He absolutely knew it. Of course, they have children. And oftentimes when you're raised, listen, when you're raised in a home that prides itself on self-control for the sake of self-control, right? Where in, in which if there is a belief in God, at least minimally, the kids also see the hypocrisy of their parents, Right? Oh, yeah, we believe in God. We go to temple like once a month, you know, like we do that, whatever. But, yeah, and then they see their parents just not really living. But they're stoic. They're moralistic, therapeutic deists. There's one for you, right? They're stoics. But the kids look at that, and they go, that, that's just, that's hypocritical. They, they're not living the, and so the kids, the kids, on the other hand, the Epicureans, essentially, they throw self-control completely out the window. Right? Their philosophy becomes really simple, and many of you have lived this before, because I know I did. Come on, carpe diem, seize the day, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow what? We die. So they cast off all forms of self-control. Why? Because self-control is it's overrated. It's limiting. It takes away all of our freedom and what we think is the good life. These are the kids careful how you raise your kids. These are the Epicureans. A really good parable in the New Testament, one of my favorites, one of your favorites, highlights this really, really well. You all know it. It's the parable of the prodigal son, right? In Luke chapter 15, Jesus teaches this parable. He begins by saying, it's about a man who has two sons. It's about a man who has two sons. Now, we all know, if you've been through this parable before, that this man represents God the Father. And one of his sons, his youngest son, comes to him early on in this story and says, Father, Father, give me the share. We'll have that on screen, Alec. Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, look at this, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country where he squandered his property in reckless living. So what do you think? Stoic or Epicurean? Epicurean, right? Yep. The younger son, listen, he wants nothing to do with the father. What does he want? He wants the father's wealth and property for himself. Later, after the younger son squanders his inheritance in wine, women, and yes, much song, he comes to his senses, returns to his father after feeding some pigs for a while, 
who welcomes him, not look at, not just with open arms, but he, but he actually calls upon the servants to get one of his best robes, put it on his son, and, and, and calls to have the fatted calf killed and says, we're having a party. For my son that was lost has been found. He's home. That's our Heavenly Father. You also know that the elder brother, the firstborn, <laughs> comes in from the field, hears about what's going on, and he's indignant. He's absolutely indignant. Furious, in fact. And, and when his father invites him to come on in and join the party <laughs> and be part of the party and the celebration that his, his younger brother has been found, a, a younger brother that he didn't even go looking for, by the way, he says this to his father, look, man, whenever I see that word, first and foremost in this text, I'm always like, wow, it's not a good way to talk to your dad. These many years I have served you. I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. So what's he saying? He's saying, look, I kept the rules, Dad. I kept all the rules. I obeyed you all the time. That's a stretch, probably, right? I served you. This is a stoic, is it not? It's, it's in the parable. It's right in the picture. And it's, it's, it's where we can go with self-control if we don't understand it well. Yeah. So both of these cases, they did not love the father, but they basically by their actions demonstrated their love for themselves. And self-control was part of it or not at all. So now with all this background, I'm hoping we'll be able to better see what actually Holy Spirit-empowered self-control looks like, what it looks like, and how it ripens all of the facets of the fruit in us. And so as we move to our conclusion, yeah, we're going to get there soon. Let me try and articulate a definition of, of, of the self-control the Holy Spirit wants to ripen in you and I and how he wants to use it. In his book, the book that I highlighted earlier, Your Future Self Will Thank You, Drew Dick provides a very succinct definition which I want to put on screen for you. He said this and wrote this, self-control is the ability to do the right thing even though you don't feel like doing it. You know, there, there are sins of commission and so, sins of omission as well, right? So there are things that we should not do, but also things we should be do. Yeah, so same thing when it comes to self-control. So it's simple. It's simple. It's very simple. We should be able to go, amen, let's pray, right? Hold on. There's a bit of a problem, and you all know this. There's a problem for the Christian. We believe that the right thing to do has been determined by God, and he has put it in here. That's what we believe. In other words, the right thing to do is not what you and I determine it is at all. Sometimes we get lucky with the roulette wheel, but it's determined by God, and it's determined by him through his word. He knows what's best. He shows us what's right and wrong through his word. Self-control, then, is about obeying. It's not self-determined. It means submitting every decision we make to God. It's about surrender. When we do this consistently, it is self-control. 
A careful reading of all of Paul's books makes this absolutely clear, and we're going to see how he highlights that at the beginning of Galatians 5 in a second. But true freedom is this from Paul's teachings. is not a license to do as you please. It's not a license to do as you please, but it's a liberty to do what you ought to do. It's the freedom to do that. So we live and walk the Christian life what? Where? In the soup. It's a battleground. Every day. The minute you leave here, it's, it's on you. <laughs> it's on me. The battle is real. Every day of our lives, we battle internal desires that are cultivated by external pressures and attractions. And our inclination is to indulge, to fall back into it every once in a while. You'll all remember the series we did again last year uh, on spiritual warfare, right? And I quoted for you often John Mark Cormer's uh, basic thesis of his book, Live No Lies, and it'll be on screen again. It was this. This is what Satan is doing all the time, every day, right now even. Some of you are hearing this sermon going, yeah, I don't buy that. (laughs) Okay. Deceptive ideas. The devil. That's all he is. He's a liar. He's the father of all lies. That play to our disordered desires, which are our flesh, is our flesh, that are normalized in a sinful society, which is the world. This is the battle every day. You'll all, many of you have read uh, C.S. Lewis's great book, The Screwtape Letters. Anybody? If you haven't read it, you should read it. I, I have to let you know in advance that if you're going to read it, it's, um, it's not what you think it is when you're reading it. It's, it's allegorical, metaphorical. It's every kind of oracle that there is, right? I mean, Screwtape is actually Satan. He's the devil, right? He has a bunch of minions, uh, you know, like his, his demons that he sends out to do his work, right? And, and, and he also has a, an enemy, you, and you, and you, and you, and me. We're the enemy in the story here that I'm going to quote. But he also has a great enemy. They have a great enemy, which is Father God. C.S. Lewis put it this way. And this is uh, Screwtape speaking to his minion. All that we can really hope to do is encourage our enemies to take the good things that our ultimate enemy has given them. God gives us good things at the wrong time or in the wrong quantity or with the wrong person. He wrote this many, 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 many years ago. How prophetically true is that in our day and age? So as I mentioned, Paul gives us the key, really, for us to understand where we're at with self-control. He says in Galatians 5.1, For freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Holy Spirit-empowered self-control, therefore, I suggest to you, secures our freedom our freedom from these things that Christ purchased for us on the cross, the freedom to live the new life as new creations in Christ, to fully experience all of him, get all of him, not all of ourself, but all of him. That's what these facets, these virtues are, are him. And that's what he wants us to possess and to have and to live out. You know, one of the reasons why he's writing this letter into that, that, that Galatian church is because there are a lot of Epicureans there. A lot of Epicureans are going, Paul, Paul, you also preached about grace. Remember that? Grace. Grace will abound. All my sins are forgiven. What's a few more? Paul's going, you're an idiot. That's not the point. I, I, I'm going to read a text for you just in closing in just a sec, but um, 
one practical example of how we can work this out every day in our lives. Because, listen, it's going to be a battle. If you're struggling with self-control, and you are, just admit it. Walk out of here today and pray. Talk to your friends and pray about your lack of self-control, whatever it might be. You need to exercise. Like, what happens with physical exercise? If I wanted to get my biceps back at my age, what would I have to do, right? What would I have to do? I'd have to grab a weight, and I would have to do this repeatedly. What, what is that kind of exercise actually called? Anybody? Strength training, it's something else as well. Resistance training. I'm resisting the weight, right? I'm resisting it by actually using it. My muscles are resisting it. And what happens if I keep doing that? I build a muscle or I get it back. It's not too late for me. This is exactly the same exercise when it comes to temptation. Resist. That's why James says, In his book, in chapter 4, verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That, by the way, is an imperative. He he will flee you if you resist him over and over and over and over again. He will flee you. And if that happens, what will truly happen for you? You'll be free. You'll be free. Paul wrote to his other young son in the faith, Titus, in chapter 2. I want to just read these words with you and then just make one comment. Writing to young Titus, probably in his late 20s, early 30s. But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded. Kevin, you and me, okay? We're to be sober-minded. They're older. Shouldn't they be by now? He's to teach this to older men, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and in steadfastness. Ladies, you're not getting away with this. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Now, I'm not really sure why he mentions that part to the ladies only, but anyway, you can talk about that in small group this week. They are to teach, look at this, what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, young people, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about you, no us. When we walk out of these doors today, we represent each one of us. This is about us. This is about the church. We need all of us to be seen to being self-controlled. We're to be identified as people who love God and love our neighbors as ourselves, yes, and by our fruit, which includes self-control. So friends, the Holy Spirit is available to you at any time. You realize that, right? He's in you. He's available to you at any time. He's basically sitting there going, do you need a little bit of self-control right now? Do you? His answer is, if you say yes, he goes, okay, well, just ask me. You need self-control over what right now? What temptation are you dealing with? Because if you ask me, I will help you flee. I will help you. In the meantime, I just want to let you know, while you're doing that, and you could ask me, I'm on mission with Jesus. And we've got places to go and people to see 
And people who want to learn more about Jesus and, and end up having the same fruit that you have in their lives. And so I, I'm on mission with him and I've got to go. Do you want to come? Do you want to come? Do you want to go? Do you want to go? You and I need self-control. We need self-control. Pray with me, would you? Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, <clears throat> Uh, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, uh, you, you, you together, um, your plan of salvation, your plan of justification and sanctification, that part of our lives that we're living in now is so incredibly perfect. I pray for myself, Lord, I pray for everyone here this morning, all of us as members of this church family over the last many weeks and in the weeks ahead, that Holy Spirit, you will continue to teach us about your fruit. You will continue to show us how precious and wonderful the freedom that we now have and can have daily in Christ to not only experience love, joy, peace, patience, but to possess it, to truly possess it which is what, why you want to ripen this fruit in us so that we can possess it, not selfishly for ourselves, but so that we can go and share it with this lost and dying world. So, Holy Spirit, we need your help. We desperately need your help. I need your help. Ripen this fruit in us, we pray. I pray you'd bless us as we continue in our service this morning. In your worthy name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.